<laughs> There's a running joke. If you've heard my message about uh, my inability to sing, there was a whole message on not healed yet, and Jonathan also makes a joyful noise like that. And so we were joking around a couple of years ago that we were going to make a Christmas CD and record us singing, which would be just horrendous sounding, but a great gag, right, that you would give people, and it would be so much fun. any rate, good times. It's good to be with you. I'm excited about my message this morning. It's uh, titled Identity Theft. And I want to thank our sponsor, uh, LifeLock. I'm just kidding. No, not that kind of identity theft. But I've been thinking a bit. We also have the punny jokes, don't we, Jonathan? Yeah, he is the pun master. He's so quick at those. But I have been processing a bit about identity and where we get our value and self-worth. And if you look up the actual definition, it says, in identity is who you are, the way you think about yourself, the way you are viewed by the world, and the characteristics that define you. And in lots of ways, you know, instead of the word identity, we use identify. Identify us, American. Identify as Canadian or British or whatever, right? And it can, it can change and evolve based on society, based on the norms of the time, you know? And I had uh, dear, dear friends of ours that live with us while they're at the school revival, and they were German. And because of the interesting past with Germany, with World War I and World War II and Hitler, he struggled at times with identifying with that part of his, his history, right? And if you think about it, at one time, being overweight was considered wealthy and austere, and that was a good thing. Because you had enough resources to feed yourself. You didn't have to do manual labor. All you had to do was sit there and do nothing, and that was what was considered, ooh, you're fat. You must be successful, right? It's crazy. Think about where we are with a BC in America today. The American uh, Medical Association has said it is now a chronic disease, obesity in America. The CDC actually calls it an epidemic. So what used to be, wow, that's amazing, is now killing us, right? And then you think about different aspects of we're in a full-scale war for identity and identifying. Think about, you know, what comes with the baggage associated with being identified in certain camps. Oh, you're a UNC fan. Oh, you're a Wolfpack. Oh, you're a Dookie. Don't like Dookies, right? I didn't go to any of those universities, so it doesn't bother me. Oh, you're pro-life. Oh, you're pro-choice. Oh, you're a libertarian? Right? You, you start to identify with these things, and that's okay, you know? What about current events, right? The, the current political environment, oh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're on this side, you're on this side. Oh, you're on that side of immigration? Oh, you're on this side of immigration, right? How do you feel when you're around someone that disagrees with your current stance on things? Do you get ruffled a little bit? Right? What if they're believers? Are you still working things out? Right? And it's okay to have those passions. God probably put those in your heart to do something about it. But what happens if that identity and that other thing is your top button? You're like, top button, what do you mean? Well, so if you look at it this way, if my top button is off, what happens to my shirt, right? The whole thing is messed up because my top button isn't aligned with the right thing. <laughs> so when you start to focus on things that are anything other than Jesus, the love of the Father, when you focus on those things and you get your top button misaligned, your whole shirt's messed up. And I think that's been the journey of my life, learning to get that button before I knew Jesus to hear, to hear, to hear, so that when I'm walking, I have him as my top button. 
that I'm in alignment. It's not that those other things aren't really good and valuable, but is he my top button? You see, so much of my identity used to be in who I was apart from him, and I'm learning to walk more in who I am in him and less about the other things. I came by it naturally, though. My, uh, my dad was the first one in his family to go to college. He came from working class, part of central Ohio. They actually said, why are you going to get an education? That's stupid, right? And so I'm from a tiny town with 2,500 people and two stoplights. My dad was a town psychologist. I could do nothing without people knowing, right? But there was this kind of performance that I had to succeed. And my dad set us on a path for success to allow me and my brother to succeed academically, but he could have put a value on it. But at times, the pendulum swung the other side, right? And I started to base some of my identity on those things. And uh, <coughs> my parents got divorced when I was three or four years old. And everyone got remarried, but everyone was still workaholics. They, they, they just worked 80 hours a week. And I remember in high school visiting a friend of mine like midweek and they were having family dinner and I'm like, what are y'all doing? They're like, well, we're having dinner as a family. I'm like, what? Like it was a concept that I, I didn't even understand. Like f family night was Friday night. You had pizza and you watched a movie. That was family night Friday night, right? It was just like every day you eat with a, the, the whole family, like together, right? And it was just, it was just different the way that I was raised. But, but we would always like accomplish tasks. And that was what we talked about. How are you doing? Oh man, let me tell you what I did today. Boom, 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 boom. Really? What did you do? Boom, 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 boom. Right? We put so much value on accomplishing and not much value on emotionally connecting. Because, you know, it's hard to quantify that. At the end of the day, when I check off my list, yes. How do you check off heart connection? Well, there's no box for that. That's only one box. I want to have 13. You know, and then I remember in college, like my freshman year, I was, went from Michigan down to South Carolina, and I'm down there in deep South Carolina, my roommate was from, and I remember calling my dad at like one or two o'clock in the morning. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm calling my dad. What do you mean? He's up. <laughs> and he, you know, like that was just my life, right? And then I'm fortunate that I have an undergraduate degree, an MBA, and a law degree. And I've been around a lot of really, really smart people, and I'm never the smartest one. But I knew that I could outwork you. And I had this pride in how I could work, like high, high level of burnout. I would just go and go and go because I wanted to accomplish and do good things, which were good, right? And then when you get saved, some of your behavior comes into your new saved relationship with Jesus, right? And you're trying to work and work and work and your, your buttons are fighting each other, right? And I, I had this theology, I don't know if you had this theology where I have to keep doing things like I have been, but now for Jesus, Right, I got to keep doing and keep doing and reading the Bible and praying and all the really good important things. And then you have this theology that creeps up like, if I skip church today or don't have my quiet time, I'm going to get hit by a bus. Right? You have this like, the smiter is going to come and smite me if I don't do the really important things. Right? And so for those of you that know uh, my journey, you know, in in not knowing who I was in Christ Jesus, not knowing the Father's love, that in 2008, when Catch the Fire was being planted, my wife and I were in a really bad place. We were headed towards divorce. We were talking just, just in a really place. I was chasing after my career. And all of a sudden, I came and got immersed for the first time and heard things like, the Father loves you. You can't do anything to have him love you more. You can't do anything to have him love you less, right? And you start to realize who you are in Christ Jesus. And I start to unpack these things, and you're like, oh, wow. And then... They had this concept of inner healing. I'm like, my dad's a psychologist. I don't need inner healing. What are you talking about, right? 
But then you start embracing things like RTF and Sozo and HeartSync and all the different modalities that bring so much freedom and joy, right? And you start connecting with your emotion and you start realizing, wow. And I love as a movement of Catch the Fire that we embrace that. You know, there's nothing wrong with talk therapy, but spending five minutes or a half an hour, an hour with the Holy Spirit is powerful. Like jumpstarting that, right? And John and Carol, for those of you that don't know, were the founding pastors of the movement um, 25 years ago. And they still carry the value for always wanting more. There's always layers. I don't want to speak that over you. There often can be layers of your healing, right? And so, like, Murray and Ash had learned some new modality of, of, of inner healing or something. And a couple years ago, John and Carol were like, oh, do a session on us. Do a session on us, right? And they're the founders. And they're like, we want more of Jesus and more freedom and all of those things. And you start unpacking in that. And... You're like, oh, this is so good. And, you know, it's been a 10-year journey of me working on my identity to try to get it less based on work and task and more based on who I am in him, right? And I'm still working, I think, with the Holy Spirit's help. I've made some progress, right? And uh, a couple weeks ago, we went on vacation, and, and, I, and I had this thought to do something radical on vacation. Turn off my emails on my phone. I mean, we're talking a major step. You're talking about a former workaholic that's working out his issues, and you're like, you mean like for two weeks I can't check my emails at all? Okay, that's kind of crazy. Now, I used to joke with people. I said, you know, what is it that you do for a living? Well, I respond and write emails. That's the majority of my job. <laughs> and so I recently got a new computer, and I imported all the, the data, you know, from one computer to the other computer. And it took, you know, an hour or so to get everything else. And then I got to the part where I was going to import the emails, like four hours. It's like processing X of nearly 1.2 million messages. I'm really hoping that I don't have 1.2 million messages on the machine. I hope it's some kind of Apple indexing thing that's doubled or whatever, because that doesn't count the ones that I've deleted. But I now have proof that, yes, the majority of my job is writing and responding to emails. 1.2 million. <laughs> And so this radical thing that I wanted to do on vacation, the first time in 21 years that I've had a work email to completely go dark for two weeks, literally turn it off. But you know when you're about ready to do something radical, you want to test it. So you go to your friends, your coworkers, you say, you know, Michael, I'm thinking about doing something on vacation. What's that? Turning off my work emails. What do you think? Well, that's a great idea. Really? Chris, what do you think? That's a great idea. Mer that's a great okay, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn off my work emails. And so you're like, that's hilarious, but you don't understand. When you're a workaholic and you get some of your juice out of that, that's a big deal. I mean, the world could explode if I'm not on my emails. What happens? They can't reach out to me. There's like the landline I can't even call back out. The world, what's going on? And so this is, you know, it's kind of funny. And, you know, in, in the first couple of days, I was like in this kind of like little bit of a fog. I'm like, don't have anything to do <sighs> I'm gonna read and relax and there's not much to do up in New Hampshire it's like there I mean it's a beautiful area but the, it's very remote there's a town you know 20 minutes away or whatever and so I like read half a book and then read another book and you know I'm like okay and then you start to get into it and you realize you're like okay and actually in the beginning what I thought was that I was just really burnt out from the season getting there and I was just tired and it wasn't some kind of addiction with my phone or something you know what I mean but <laughs> You know, but then we're getting to the end of vacation. I need to have an oil change for the van because I'm about ready to drive home. So there's a place in town. I go in town, 
and I know they have Wi-Fi. And I'm like, well, instead of coming back on Monday and having all these emails, why don't I just check them there so I can prepare myself for what the next week's going to look like? It felt reasonable. And i got to sit there anyway for an hour, right? So I check the emails. I respond to a couple urgent ones with telling them I'm not really back. I'm just responding to the emails so I could sort of still say that I was not checking emails. And I got it down to like 70 urgent ones, that, or not sort of urgent ones that I had to deal with the next week. And I'm like, all right, that's not bad. Oil change is done. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, you know. And I'm like, oh, whew, yeah. And then the Lord starts to speak to you. You're feeling pretty good. Now you check your emails, don't you? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't have that much to do next week. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, you kind of get the adrenaline rush, don't you, out of getting things done, don't you? Yeah. And you know, you had those conversations with the Lord sometimes. You're like, I see this is not going the way I think it should be going. He's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, what do you think about that? Well, Lord, I enjoy work. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy being neat and helping people. Mm-hmm. How much are you getting your identity out of getting things done, accomplishing, being needed, being part of the center of whatever, right? Okay, another layer. Thank you, Lord, right? And I had done all these sessions with inner healing and all this stuff and RTF and Sozo. And, well, I don't think I've done Sozo. Art Sync, right? I've done a couple sessions, but like the full out, right? And then you're meeting with therapists and count, you're getting all this stuff. And I'm like, I thought I was there. And then taking a vacation opened another layer. Right, okay. Maybe that button needs to come down a little bit. Put Jesus back where he's supposed to be. And you know, you're laughing at me. You're like, dude, it's emails, bro. Just chill. But you know, the reality is <laughs> it can be different things to different people, right? You know, I got things done, right? I was processing. And part of the journey, I think that's why they call it a walk with the Lord. Because if we tried to run, we'd probably fall down, right? We're trying to learn and work on things. And I'm, and I'm feeling good. And all of a sudden, there's another layer, another level of healing. And, you know, it may not be work for some of you in here. It could be something else, Right? What if your friends or your intellect, sports, hobbies, even ministry itself, what if current political events or things in the environment are going on or that are, that are really your hot buttons? What about social media? You know, if you're like me from time to time and we slip into having that button misaligned, there's that risk that you put that thing above you, right? The reality is we always need to have Jesus as our top button. And you know, you see what happens if we don't, you're setting yourself up for potential disaster and destruction if you don't have him. If you don't have the one thing that can never be taken away, Jesus Christ and the love of the Father as your top button, anything else can be taken away. You think about it, you see so many former athletes that have had some kind of career-ending injury. Their entirety of their identity was built in that sport or that thing, and then it ends and they're like, I don't know what to do, Right? because they had their button misaligned. It wasn't their top priority. Or the flip side of that coin, what if you accomplish your top button and it's not Jesus? How many times have you heard about leaders of organizations that all of a sudden they got everything that they've ever wanted. They're now the president of the biggest company in the world. They're whatever it is that there was their top button that they were pursuing. Or you're now the, the, the elected to Senate or whatever you think is. And all of a sudden you get there and that was your top button. You realize, is this all? Is this it? Is this the only thing? That top button needs to be grounded in the one thing that can never be taken away, and that's in Jesus Christ. Because anything else, 
you're on rocky ground. If you have your Bibles, let's look at Matthew 3. The very familiar verse with Jesus in the baptism. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven opened. It never says in scriptures that heaven closed. So if you're one with Jesus, you have an open heaven, and just let that sink in. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. That is such a profound statement at that time for several different reasons. One, when the Lord speaks, things happen. There is power when the audible voice of the Lord commands things. The cosmos was created with God's spoken word, right? Kings, kingships, People rise and fall on the spoken word of the Lord. And, you know, the Lord speaks to us in different ways. Dreams, prophetic words, quiet, still whispers. But the spoken word, that's a big deal. I can imagine that in this room, dozens of, uh, dozens of times, or even hundreds of times, we felt the Lord say something to us, right? Oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to move from here to here. I'm supposed to take this job. I'm supposed to marry. Okay, I feel it from the Lord. And, and, you know, you're going to have lots of those experiences, hopefully. But you're probably only going to remember the big ones. Just there's so many, right? But if you heard the audible voice of the Lord, my guess is you would not forget that moment. Well, this is important. <laughs> this is a big deal, right? And you see in Scripture, the Lord comes and speaks to people, usually kind of like in big groups. I mean, in, in small groups, like one or two people, you know, Noah and, and his sons and, and Job and Jacob and David and Solomon and the prophets. You know, it, and, and that's where he's speaking this time. But this time was different. There was very likely a huge crowd around John. It says earlier in Matthew, then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, going out to John to be baptized. That means there was something going on, and they were all coming out there. So there was probably a big crowd. So this is, this is, what, Jesus, this is what the Lord is declaring. This is my son in a very public way to a big crowd of people who would have been looking for the Messiah. At that time, there is 4,000 years of history about the coming Messiah, right? Where they're speaking at, there's scholars disagree, but somewhere between 200 and 400 prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling. They were keenly aware that there was a Messiah coming in the line of David, going all the way back to the promises that were spoken and the words declared going to Adam and Eve and Abraham. And so they were keenly aware. So in a very big public way for the Lord to say, this is my son, who I'm well pleased, was a serious endorsement and a coming attraction that they were expecting. And they were like, whoa, right? And the Lord delivered in a very profound way. It was just different than they thought. They thought it was gonna look a bit different. And you can just imagine the people like, whoa, Right? Can you imagine you were Saul on the road to Damascus? Boom. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who? Jesus. What? And it says there that his friends, or the people that he was with, 
were speechless because they heard the voice of the Lord but didn't see it. So when the Lord speaks audibly, it's, it's important and a big deal, right? And, and I've been thinking about this. The other thing that's really interesting is what the Lord speaks over Jesus. This is my son who I'm well pleased. He's about ready to go into the family business, but he hasn't done anything for the family business. You're pleased with me and I haven't done anything? Right? Usually when you step into the family business, you've been mentored, you've been groomed, you've been, you've been doing the things, right? For 30 years, Jesus was a son and a carpenter, and we don't know really from 12 to 30, you know, those 18 years, there's very little in that time, right? And all of a sudden he said, you know, no, my son, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. And I'm you, I am well pleased. And you could just see that it blessed Jesus. Because right after there, he was taken into the wilderness. In chapter 4, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus responds, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone so you serve. Then the devil left, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Can you think of the gravity of this situation? The father just says that. You're now in 40 days, and you know that your job is to birth and to continue on this worldwide ministry that's gonna change the world, right? The next phase of it, right? And I can imagine if it was me, I'd be like, you know, the devil's got some pretty good ideas about some PR, right? I mean, if we make a big splashy campaign in the beginning, it's gonna be a bit easier, right? But he didn't do that, right? What did he do? Every time when then the devil came and tried to twist something, when the father of lies came, he said, it is written. I don't have to believe what you're saying. It is written. This is who I base my identity in. It's not those other things, right? And if you kind of work through what those are there, it's fascinating to me that you kind of look them in the, in the categories. You can see the first one is power. You could also translate that sort of like career. Like how much do we get our identity out of our careers? As a culture, I'm not singling you out, as a culture, right? Do we identify differently and think differently of ourselves and others if you're a, you know, a retail employee working just a couple hours at a gas station versus a brain surgeon? Do we identify different things with that, right? You get your identity in there, right? And I think it's really interesting that Jesus kept going back to the word of God and his identity as a son, meaning I know who I am. I'm beginning my ministry, and at the end, when he's washing Jesus, when he's washing the disciples' feet, he's talking about, I've come from the Father, I'm now going back to the Father. He never lost his identity, he always knew who he was. And I think, in so many ways, we, we look at these opportunities that are, that are tempting to kind of shortcut things, and I think I would have been tempted to try to shortcut things and help God. Oh, I know I can do it here, or this way, or whatever, right? And I remember, gosh, uh, it's been a few years, when Duncan first released his book, 
Well, we got a connection in Atlanta. We drove to Atlanta to connect with a, a book promoter to promote his book. And Duncan wasn't interested in selling his book to just sell his book, but influence, right? You want to change lives and impact people. And so we're meeting with these guys, and these guys roll with the big boys, right? Big ministries, big book publishing arm, and they knew how all the strategy, and I learned through that season that you can actually, with enough money, become a New York Times bestseller. You know, you can place your products here and place your products here, and they know how to get your books here. It's just, it's fascinating the world. Now, you may not get your second one there, right? But it's just the point is that there's a science, sort of, and money to make it happen. And we're in that process and and trying to figure out what's to do, and, and Duncan was praying, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, Duncan, do you want me to promote your book or do you want to promote your book? Good point. We never signed, or we, we. We didn't sign the contract. He didn't sign the contract. And so he just went about his business and he just, you know, kind of processed things. And I, and I think it's fascinating now that he, he's not a New York Times bestseller, but he's influencing the nation and nations as now he and Kate are the presidents of Catch the Fire World, which he wasn't at that time. And you think about the global impact that Catch the Fire, the movement, has had. It's phenomenal. I was just at meetings a couple weeks ago that, that some people argue that it could be like 100 million people that have been impacted by what has happened through the, the last 25 years. They, they estimate 3 to 4 million people came to the church. But if you think about those people that came and those lives that they've touched, if you think about the lives that Bethel Music has touched, the lives that Heidi and Roland Baker has touched, I mean, it's just monumental. And now we get to be part of this, right? He gets to be leading that. And I was uh, talking to Michael Brodeur, and he said, it's a fascinating thing about histories of revival, that they usually have about a 25-year life cycle. And after the 25 years, they kind of just fade away. Unless there's a second cataclysmic event that kicks it off. And I'm excited where we are as a movement that Duncan and Kate became the presidents during this transition. As we're getting ready, we just celebrated 25 years. And all the prophetic words we're hearing is 2019 is a preparation year, get ready for the breakout year in 2020, right? And we're like, yes. And so there's just exciting things like with the new album being released and the new products that are coming out. It's just exciting part of being part of something bigger. It's fun to be something bigger than just a little local church, which is really important. Local church is really good to be a part of local church in the community, but it's fun to be something bigger, right? To know that we're impacting the nation and nations and to see lives transformed when we come in alignment about Jesus, Right? So many times I think the Christians get misaligned, and I have it the 95-5% rule, right? It's like 95% of what you and I agree on, we agree on, but we fight over the 5%, theologically speaking, right? Did Jesus come? Is he the son of God? Did he die? Did he rise? Is he the only way back to the Father? Yes. Okay, all the other stuff, you're right, you know, dunk, sprinkle, all those different things, the theologians, you know, I think if we came together as a body of believers, we can completely change the nation, But I think we get into that identity. Oh, you're a Methodist. Oh, you're a Presbyterian. Oh, you're a, right? We get into these things and associate all these things. And the devil's like, this is awesome. They're doing my job. They're coming with the major identity issues and the temptations. You know, the same temptations that I took out the first Adam, I was trying to take out the second Adam, right? I went after Adam and Eve's identity. I came after Jesus' identity. And he still is coming after our identity. So the first one you know, looking at power, a lot of career. I remember when I was a lawyer, right? Still a lawyer. When I was actively practicing law, you know, there's just this, you know, you got this big law firm behind you. If something went down, you're like, <laughs> yeah, okay, right? You just had this. And, and I think as a body of believers, we need to look at, be like, I have the biggest law firm in the world. 
I have the creator of all law firms behind me. And as a body of believers, when we come together, right, it's like Danny Silk principle, one be up, one be down, you know, is that you can't be both down. So like when, you know, Michael and I have bounced around different ideas, we've lifted each other up, we've iron sharpened iron. It's like the body of believers coming together is the best law firm on the planet. That's where you get your identity in our body, in our believers, in our brothers. The second major area is popularity, right? The devil comes after popularity. I remember when I was younger, people asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I want to be famous. I want to be popular. It's not a vocation, right? But, you know, even back then I was like, oh, yeah, it's a vocation now. YouTube. Uh, we actually stopped letting our younger kids watch some of the stuff on YouTube. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I know you make a quarter of a million dollars a year doing that, but that is just stupid. I, even if I got paid a quarter of a million dollars, I wouldn't do that. What? Right? It's because you're popular. You've got this. You get the ad revenue. And you think about social media now, right? I can't even imagine, you know, obesity used to be looked at. Now we're looking at a chronic disease. What is social media going to be in 40 years? I really think about some of those things of like, our culture is so indoctrinated with that, they've actually, the companies actually do studies to figure out how you sort of become more addicted to social media, right? You're like, I'm not sure if you've ever been guilty of this, but you, you have that perfect picture, that perfect post with the perfect quote, and you tag just the right amount of people. And then about an hour later, you look at it, and no one's liked it. You're like, oh. What is going on? Oh, you're like, oh, wait a second about that. Yeah, okay, right? And there's actually like it releases chemicals in your brain. And some people have like left some of these tech companies because they're like, we're destroying some people's lives. Like literally, it's like a drug is being released, right? And there's actually real deaths. There, you know, if you just Google like selfie deaths, right? Some guy is up to the mountains, takes a picture, falls off and dies. There was a guy that got hit by a train trying to take a selfie because he wanted to see how close he could get. Well, pretty close, apparently. <laughs> because he wanted or she wanted that perfect post. Popularity. It wasn't a vocation, but it is now. And it feels like it's, it's, it's in our inner being that everyone wants to be known. We live in this like celebrity culture, right? It's the same temptation that was used to try to take out Jesus is still used to take it out today. It's coming after us. And the next area that he goes after is really politics. Right? We don't have to say much about politics. We know how divisive politics is. Right? We know that if you're on the other side of the aisle, I know what you stand for, and you know what I stand for, and there's this, right? And how much are we getting our identity in that? And when you mix politics and social media, it becomes just a, whoo. And it's, it's been interesting, you know, uh, because we're very international. We have a lot of people on the team that come that are international, and just talking to them that they're like, American politics is like a zoo, right? It's like, a, it's like, it's like another professional sport, right? Football, basketball, hockey, and politics. You know, these are our professional sports that we have. And it's just crazy. And then you mix the two together, and everyone's got an opinion, and they're going crazy. And who would have thought 50 years ago that one day our highest elected people in the land, senators, congressmen, and all this stuff, would be fighting on social media like children? Right? And that's what it is. That temptation of politics is you vote for me, and I'll give you what you want. If you do what I want, I'll do what you want, right? There's this temptation. And you see, that's what the devil was using even back then, and Jesus said no. And I think when the devil starts to come and whisper lies in our ears, we need to remember, it is written who I am in Christ Jesus. It is written that I am a son. 
It is written that he so loved me that he gave his only son for me and me alone. It is written. That button needs to come down and be in alignment, and I need to put Jesus in that top button. The love of the Father in that top button. All the other things are important, but if you miss that top button, the rest of the shirt is jacked up. It is written. If we could get the ministry team, I mean the uh, keys up here. I just feel like the Lord has been speaking to me about returning to my first love to make sure that in all areas of my life I'm looking introspectively, is my top button still my top button or have there been some things that have shifted just a little bit? The crazy thing is, is I thought I was doing pretty good. And then I went away on vacation and did something silly like turn off my emails and I found another layer. Can I tell you a little secret? I haven't put my emails back in my phone yet. Don't tell Murray. I'm just kidding. He'd probably be proud of me. I still have other devices and ways to get my emails. It's not like I'm not checking work emails. They're just not on my phone, okay? I'm not that crazy, all right? Why don't we stand as we start to close out? And, and if there's something that the father of lies has been using in your life to steal your identity, let's say, no, 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 it is written. My top button my main place of self-worth and identity is in Jesus Christ and the love of the Father, that which we can never be taken, that which we can never be removed from us. Because if we put it in anything other than that, we may get it or we may lose it. But the one thing that we can never lose is our relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's just close our eyes and just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things, even little things like Man, I really follow this sports team and I'm really passionate. And Monday is really, really rough on me when they lose. I think a good way to check on things in your heart is when you're quiet and you're doing nothing, like I was on vacation, what do you think about? What are those things that come bubbling up in your forethought? Is it? Ooh, I need to make more money. Ooh, I need to progress in my career. Ooh, I need to accomplish this or this or this. Ooh. Maybe just a little bit, that button. Maybe it's not a full button up. Maybe it's just a little bit. How's my social media post doing? Oh, right, right. Ask the Lord, is there any area of forgiveness that you need to give and ask for? Lord, I am sorry that I've put this above that. I'm sorry, Lord, that I put my relationship with work and what I accomplish out of that, my self-worth out of that above you and you alone. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. And I was just processing that. And I'm like, oh, you just, I'm overwhelmed by his love that he continues to keep showing up and blessing us. Because without his presence, as Jonathan and the worship team were pressing in this morning, without his presence, we're just getting together for a meeting. But it's his presence that matters, that changes lives, that impacts us. And I feel this morning that the Lord is gonna give us a supernatural anointing to return to our first love, to base more and more of identity in him and him alone.
So if that's you, if you're passionate to seek after more of the Lord, to peek, to keep him as the top button in your life and to lay down those other areas that you may have gotten some of your identity or self-worth out of, why don't you just take a prophetic act and come out front and just spend some time with the Lord at the altar and allow the Lord to whisper who you are and what you mean. The Lord made you individually. He made you just like you for a purpose. He made you uniquely designed for such a time as this. He wants to say over you, in you, my son, in you, my daughter, I am well pleased. It's not about what you do in the family business. It's about who you are. Do you know my son, Jesus? That's enough. Maybe there's some of you that are here or online. You've never given Jesus an opportunity to be that top button in your life, to make him your Lord and Savior. So if that's you, just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I need a Savior. I know, Jesus, that I need you in my life. Will you come into my life, Jesus, right now and rescue me that I can spend eternity with you, that I can start to learn to love you more and to walk out my life with you as my top button. Spirit, just come right now. Start to whisper in people's ears who they are and whose they are. That it's not about what they do for you, but it's about who they are in you. And just feel the Father saying, in you, I am well pleased. You don't have to accomplish more. You don't have to strive more. In you, I'm well pleased. Those causes are good and well, but just make sure that you're seated with me first and foremost, and that you remain the top button in my life, Jesus.